Stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read from Job 1, 6 through 22. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Keely. reading the Bible together, and we're in Job, reading in the book of Job, and so we're into the, what's called the wisdom literature, so when you get into Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, those books are wisdom literature, it has a lot of poetry, it's uh, beautifully written, and this story is beautifully written. The book of Job, it explores this difficult question of God's relationship to human suffering. Without doubt, all of us will suffer 
in life. So it's a, an appropriate uh, question that was applicable then in ancient wisdom literature and is very applicable still to us today. Job doesn't offer any tidy little pat answers to human suffering. Wisdom literature explores um, all that God might be involved in and leaves you a lot of times without real clear pat answers and yet tells you to still trust in God. Trust in his sovereignty in suffering. Trust that he's all-powerful and good and will always, um, even though we will not always understand and we won't always have all the answers, we are to trust in God and at the same time we are also to be real and authentic with our emotions in going through suffering and we're to continue to trust that God is good and that he loves us in the midst of suffering. Job is mentioned in uh, the New Testament, too, in what is considered the New Testament book of wisdom literature, which is James. James is that very practical book, and it's a lot like Proverbs. Um, James 5.11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job lives on. In the apostles' writings, Job lives on today. I'm going to be preaching about him today. Job and what he stood for and his name will remain forever because uh, he is in the Word of God, and the Word of God never passes away. You know, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the Word of God endures forever. And Job is in that, not only in this book, but in the New Testament. So we're going to look at this, and we're not going to come up I'm going to let you know right up front with any tidy little answers, but we're going to see God's sovereignty through suffering. That means God's all-powerful. He's in control. Whether it looks like it or not to you, we don't see all. God's sovereign. We're also going to look at just being authentic emotionally. I don't really believe in fake it till you make it type of... uh, Philosophy, let's call it that. And also, at the end, we will see that God's steadfast love toward us in the midst of suffering. You ready for that journey today in God's Word? So first, uh, this lack of knowledge that we have. We have a lack of knowledge. The first verse says that in our text today, Job 1, 6 through 7, Just looking at Job all over, I'll give you a quick, broad view of of Job. So there's a prologue there that we didn't read about who Job is, his justness, his righteousness before God. Right away, you want to see that this suffering that is going to be happening is not due to anything wrong that Job has done. You're really supposed to get that in in the prologue. Then what you have is dialogue, and you have a dialogue that Job and his friends never see, never know about, is never told, uh, but we're given that insight too, and it's an, a dialogue between things that are happening in heaven, between God and Satan. So we have two chapters of a dialogue going on between God and Satan, and then after that you have 
Job and his friends, mainly three friends, and at the end, another one, for all the, the rest of the chapters are dialogue between Job and his friends, and then the last five chapters are a dialogue between God and Job. So those are the, the main portions of the book, and we're just looking at the first chapter here of what's going on. And one of the things that we see in, in verses 6 and 7 is one day uh, the NIV will say angels, trying to translate this to you, of who these are, it's calling them sons of God, can be we like, well, who are, who are they? But that's the literal words there, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. And the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth and going back and forth on it. So Job and his friends, you must realize, um, they don't have knowledge of this. Right away you see that we don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle to our suffering and human suffering. Uh, We don't know. That's evident at the beginning of this also. Job and his friends are oblivious to these heavenly deliberations that are talking on. We're having insight to it. And really what, you know, the scripture wants you to see is the suffering that is coming. We don't know all the reasons of the why. It's common to ask right away when we enter into any kind of suffering, why? So, of course, God realizes this in, in the book, that there's this question there of, like, is going to be like, well, why is all this happening? Why are bad things happening? And especially, why are bad things happening to somebody who is righteous and just? This is really a good question because it's in the dialogue of people all the time. It's in the dialogue with me a lot. It's in, it's in theology a lot. It's in people's discussions about what the gospel is, and it goes at the core of what we believe about the gospel. And so we have a, an idea in America because we don't suffer much. I mean, I know you all say, yes, I do, but we, we've lost the idea of comparatively to the world and from what, how ancient uh, times has lived with the understanding that, yeah, everybody's going to be suffering. You talk to people in India where we're talking about a lot of times most of their family has died. One brother might have survived out of nine or ten. Or This is just very common, dying just constantly because of unclean water. Hundreds of thousands into the millions of people are dying just because they don't have clean water. People live with a real deep, intense sense of suffering in the world a lot more than, uh, than, than, than maybe we have grown up around. And so this is very important. So there's different kinds of prosperity gospels, call it American gospel, and, and this kind of lie gets promoted easily in our culture in that uh, God kind of owes you a life without suffering. And this becomes mixed in with the word. Like if you, if you do all the right things, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. And so this... Um, is a lie. It's, it's promoted by false teachers, and, and it is here. God rebukes this idea from Job and his friends uh, that suffering is only the cause because someone has done something wrong. That is 
in the Bible. People do things wrong and they suffer for it. They suffer for doing wrong. Whatsoever a man sows, that also will he reap. You know, so there's a, a reaping. People do bad things and they reap the consequences of it. But those answers are incomplete. So be very careful about reaching little pat answers that, oh, that's happening, X equals Y, and, and putting God in that box. It becomes very false in its teaching. It becomes abusive in its uh, way that we treat people that uh, if they're suffering, it has something to do with what they've done. And that's what happens in this book of Job. They are stuck in a narrow mindset of God that if Job is suffering, he must have done something wrong. That's A plus B equals C. If you're, if you're blessed, you're, you've done things right. If you're cursed, you're doing things wrong. And you look very cursed, Job. And so they only have that in, in their box. And what's interesting is when I talk to people, they come up with these same, collute, these same easy little oversimplistic, tidy answers with suffering. And they even look at Job, and this is taught by different teachers. They'll point out to you Job 3.23. I had somebody uh, recently come up to me and go, oh, I found out why Job suffered. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah, Job 3.25 says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Job said that, and so what he did was he had fear, and he feared these things happening, and he dreaded them, and then they actually had opened the door for these things to come. And I said, really? Because that is not what God says in his word. That's not the conclusion that God comes to. Yeah, that's why. We don't have to suffer. You know, he only suffered because he did something wrong. And I said, that's exactly what all the bulk of the chapters are trying to say. And God rebukes them for saying those kinds of things. So be careful. I wouldn't say that. Well, isn't it right that you do suffer when you do bad things? And, you know, and I said, yes, but that's incomplete. And incomplete half-truths are lies. Did you know that? When you state and try to put God in a box with a half-truth, you're lying. There's other options out there open, and that's what the whole story of Job is about. And yet people will take Job and just dismiss him with that one verse and say, I found an answer. I got an answer from somebody. You won't give me an answer, but I found an answer from somebody. And you're wrong. Here's what the answer is. Job 3.25. That doesn't even go with the, the whole story at all. It doesn't even go with the prologue. Saying he's just and righteous, it sets you up to say he's not going to suffer because of him doing anything wrong. It establishes him as this just and righteous person that not only is, but that's who God says about him, who he is. So you're wrong right off the bat. And then you're wrong through all of the friends debate. You're wrong at the end with the conclusion, and you're just wrong. But people want to control God. They want, to, well, they want to avoid suffering at all costs. And if they can find an answer of what they can do to avoid that suffering, they want it. And so this is very applicable to what we're studying. The disciples were this philosophy, you know, this idea was within the disciples. In John 9, there's this man born blind. And here's what the disciples say. They say, uh, Rabbi, to Jesus, who sinned? See, they're looking for that. Same, simple answer. Just because if it wasn't him, was it his parents? That's what they say. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're not even given another option. You see that? They want to know A plus B equals C. And this is God and this is our box. And Jesus goes, neither. This man nor his parents sinned. And Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. 
That's a pretty good example of what's going on with Job. Job, the, the works of God is being displayed through his life. And to reach a conclusion like, oh, he feared something and it opened the door. And that's why in his sin is just oversimplistic. It's a pat answer. And it is a lie. Because it's just not true. So half-truths are lies. Be careful with those. To get people to believe stuff, you always got to mix a little bit of truth in it, right? So that's what happens. Job uh, gives us this glimpse into this heavenly scene that we know very little about. Very little. You can read the whole Bible, and I have over and over and searched all these. I've read huge books on the unseen world. Uh, I've read Heiser's book on the unseen world and these other gods, these verses that, that he uses like um, Psalm 86, 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Who are those? Who are the gods? Who are they talking about? Who are they talking about in this verse where it says the sons of God came before? Who are they? We don't know a whole lot about them. But, you know, like I said, the NIV just puts angels. We kind of know angels and demons, angels and demons. But there's uh, cherubim and seraphim, and they look very different than angels. They're very different heavenly beings. There's all kinds of a heavenly reality of a world that we know very little about, and neither does Job and his friends, but they pretend they know a whole lot, right? But they don't, and neither do we. Psalm 29.1, ascribe to the Lord, or heavenly beings. I think that's a good word. Heavenly beings, there are all kinds of heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. There's a, there's a lot. We read this morning, Teresa and I, because each day with our reading and what we're reading together, we read a psalm too, try to in, 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 in blend in with the reading of the word prayer through the psalm. And today we read Psalm 138, and here's what it said in the verse verse. I will praise you, Lord. Lord, with all my heart, before the gods, I will sing forth your praise. There's a council of gods with, you know, the Yahweh God, the God above all gods. And I mean, you know, the commandments, you know, worship the Lord uh, God and have no other gods before me. <laughs> it's because there's other gods. He is supreme amongst the God. Yes, but there's, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of things we don't know. A lot of things that we don't know. And we sure don't know all the reasons why there's suffering in the world. There is no explanation a lot of times for many of the things that, that happen. And anybody that's trying to give you a little simple answer, whether they know it or not, they're lying. They're giving you a half partial truth about God. And they're misrepresenting God. And we need wisdom. Wisdom helps us navigate the complexities of life. And, and, it's, and there's, there's some complexities there. We need, we need, but we don't have even all knowledge. We pretend like we almost have like all knowledge, like we're God, like I've arrived at this answer. And, and that's what the friends do, and, and, and they all get rebuked in the end. In fact, when God begins to speak in Job 38, he says, who is this that darkens counsel and that is obscures my plans by words without knowledge? He's actually saying they're sharing all these words and they're without knowledge. They don't, under, they don't have knowledge. They're talking with a lot of words, but they don't know what they're talking about. They, they, and, and God says, you know, I'm, I'm the creator of all things. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, when there's an older person, they've been around a long time, they know some things. I don't care how young and how smart you are, they know some things about the experience of life. And God's been around longer than anybody because he's without beginning and end. He created all things, and he's establishing, like, 
where were you now when I made the earth? You know, like, and, and then he goes into his heavenly beings again. In Job 38, 7, he says, when the morning stars sang together, where were you when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Were you there when that happened? Because that's mind-blowing. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy that wrote all the Lord of the Rings, he did the prequel to all that in The Hobbit. It's called The Silmarillion. And he has this idea kind of rooted in that verse right there that when God created all things, the angels, the morning stars were singing. And it was like an anthem of a song of beauty that was going on in creation. Now, I mean, that's his, his idea of this, you know, and it's beautiful and it's, it's kind of amazing. But that's what God's saying here. Where were you? When these morning stars sang, who are those morning stars? Who are these heavenly beings? What are they doing? What are they singing? What is this creation going? We don't even know. God's just putting Job and all of his friends in their place. You have no idea what's going on in the heavens and creation. You haven't been around long enough to know when to spit left or right. You, you just don't know. I'm sorry, that's my own words. We just don't know very much. That's the first point. Job does repent. He said, you asked, who is it that obscures plans without knowledge? And he says, I do. He repents in Job 42.3. He says, surely I spoke things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He confesses. This is Job. He was right about a lot of things. And he was right, and even with his friends, God exalts him above his friends and says, you're going to have to intercede and pray for them because they were really wrong. Job is put in his place too, and he repents. Spoke of things that he did. Don't be careful, the words, especially when someone's in suffering, to reach some kind of easy, pat answer. That's the first point. Second point is God is sovereign in our suffering. What you see in Job 1.12 is that the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So God is over this, he is controlling it. No matter what you think, God is sovereignly limiting and control. It may not look like it in your life, and it sure didn't look like it from Job because he got it from every direction. Um, theologians, when they look and they see the Sabaeans coming down and the Chaldeans and the wind coming, and that's from the east and from the south, you know, and from heaven itself came down, and he got it from every direction. It was a massive disaster, and that wasn't even the end of his disaster because then you've got to read chapter 2 where he has a sickness that is so profusely from head to body boils that he's taken a piece of a pottery and scraping off and worms are developing in it throughout his whole body and he suffers. This is intense suffering. And yet God is sovereign over that. He is watching over it. He is in still sovereign over Job's suffering, and that's made clear in the text. He's not giving us the answers, but we see what he wants us to know is that he is in control. We aren't. He is. Now, you can just flee that and say, well, I don't like that, and a lot of people do when suffering hits. They go, I'm out of this Christian thing. It was supposed to go good for me. I was supposed to smell the roses along the way, and you know, and, and so and that's what God says with the word, you know, when he says the sower and the seed. And when the sun came out, tribulation, 
It withered the plant. It didn't have deep enough roots or the care of the words choke it. Everything's after that word implanted in you to choke it out, to burn it out, and many people flee in the time. But what Job does is he sticks with it and he understands that God is sovereign over his suffering. He's not talking about Satan. He doesn't know what's going on in this debate up here, but he knows God is all-powerful. And he believes God is all good. And no matter what's going on in his life, he is turning to him. He, there's no one else to turn to. I can flee, right? And say, well, there's no God. I can be cynical. There is just no God. Uh, you know, and just suffering happens to everybody. And it's just chaotic all out there. And there's cynics out there that are just cynical about everything. Or there's moralists getting of that one verse that says, well, he did this and he's wrong. If I do everything right, then I will just be blessed. Never have to suffer. Those, those are kind of the two ideas, moralism or cynical. We can go either one of those ways, but the wisdom poetry gives you no such road. It, it, it's intricate. It's, it's you don't know everything. I'm not going to give you a real specific answer. And wisdom is having the understanding to navigate the complexities of life. And suffering is and can be a very complex issue. And we don't know, but we know that God is sovereign in our suffering. Job sees God's sovereignty in his suffering, and he defeats Satan's purposes. Satan's purpose, what he said and he establishes, he will curse God to your face. Satan knows us. He knows us. He's crafty. He's schemed. He knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's crafty. He's wise. He knows. Like You'd strip everything. I'll tell you what. They love God. They love their things. They don't love you, and this is true. There's a lot of truth in it about us. He knows. You strip something from him, he'll curse you to your face. And God's like, okay, go ahead. Let's see. And what does Job do? He knows God's sovereign. He doesn't. (laughs) It's so great. I'll get get him to curse you, God. But instead, he worships God. And he worships God and acknowledges that all he had was from God. And he had the right to give it. He has the right to take it away. He affirms God's sovereignty in his suffering. And the Lord gave, the Lord takes away. This is one of the good takeaway verses. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're going to sing that? We didn't sing it yet. I was like, where's that song? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's out of Job. We'll sing that at the close. Right? Okay, with the worship leader here. So we see that point. God is, is, is a, a sovereign in suffering. So Job is also in, authentic in his suffering. This is one of the things that, that I didn't grow up with. I didn't grow up with authenticity. You know, it was, it was a little bit more fake it till you make it. Just say you're blessed and keep going on. Don't tell people your problems. Uh, get over it. Uh, get up. Put your peace in. Go on, you know. And so this is important to me. I think it's important in the text what Job does. He Uh, does not fake it till he makes it. He doesn't just say in the midst of his suffering, oh, I'm doing great. You know, he doesn't. He's real and honest. And uh, uh, one person used this uh, phrase of what he does as lament-laden worship. Lament-laden worship. So when I look at Job's authenticity, this is the term uh, that I like, that I believe is, is a good descriptive word of Job. It says, then Job arose and tore his clothes. This is Job 1, 20 and 22, the end of our text. Arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, 
and worshiped. Uh, we would think someone, you know, doing that today be like, oh, he's, he's lost it. No, this was, this was good. This was lament. This was like, I have been crushed. I have been hurt. I have been wounded. I am real before God. This was major disaster and calamity. You know, what is going on? But I'm turning to you, God. Lament laden, authentic. Job is authentic in his worship. In the wake of all of this loss, which you look at it, it was tremendous if you look at all he had. It was, it was a Bill Gates or some Saudi Arabian, you know, the wealthiest two people in the world or whoever you want to put there, uh, whether the Amazon guy or whoever. This is, this is the kind of wealth. So the loss there is huge. And then with his kids and, and what we see in the next chapter, and it's, it's big, but he turns to God in that grief and he tore his robe and shaved his head but he continued to trust in the Lord. He turned to the Lord. He didn't run away and go, well, I'm out of this thing, and I'm not coming to church anymore, and uh, that all sucks, and that didn't work, and I'm out of here. Job turns in lament-laden worship, and he falls down before God and worships him. He turns to the only one that can heal and help his soul in this, in this disaster. He trusts more in him, both in his grief and his trust. He fell on the ground and worshiped. Lament is crying out to God in complaint, like, oh, and that's, that's okay. That's being honest with God. Lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And I was taught not to do that. Uh, don't do that. Don't show that. Don't cry. Quit it. Um, move, on, move on. But there's a process to healing that, that just doesn't move on. And, and the ancient literature, wisdom literature, knows that. You need to grieve. You need to lament. You need to fall down. You need to just do some head shaving and robe tearing and, and get down and tell God about how much this hurts. Be honest and real with him because he already knows. But he wants us to get real with ourselves. And Job does that. In his lament, it's a step of faith towards God. Don't look at his lament as, oh, they're doubting, man. Oh, man. They don't know. No, lament is a step towards faith towards God. It's not running away from him. So turn away to God, not away from him. Tell God how much you need him. Tell him he is real. He is the true reality that you don't understand all things, but you trust in him. You are my help, God. From you alone, I look to the hills from whence comes my help. God, I know you hear me. I know you're near. Lament is an act of hope in the midst of crisis. So, so Satan loses. <laughs> Curse God to his face. What does Job do in his lament? He cries out to God. He turns towards his face. He seeks God's face. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's given and he's taken away. He's sovereign. Blessed be his name. See, nothing can take that away. It's not rooted in possessions. It's rooted in the relationship that you have God. And no one can take that away. Your faith in God. And that's what the devil was after, and that's what he did not get. So when we prayed this morning, we said, we admit that we have failed to trust in your testimony about yourself. 
That's true. We fail who God says he is. He's testified about who he is and his word, and we have failed to trust in your testimony about yourself. You see, God's word is the testimony about himself. And we have failed to trust in it. God's testifying today through his word in Job that he's good and just, and he's all-powerful even when we can't see it. Are you going to trust in him, or do you want simple pat answers, or do you just want to be cynical and throw the whole thing away? Are you prepared for suffering and disappointments, despair, ultimate death, because that's what's coming? And the Bible describes it as various kinds of trials. Both Peter and James use this word. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren. He starts out his wisdom literature with the same thing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That means disaster. That means sickness. That means illness. I know, you know a lot of other gospel readers, no, not sickness. Yeah, some tribulation, troubles, things like that. Not sickness. Yeah, sickness. It's there. No, it's not God's ultimate plan. There's all half-truths mixed in with that. But the thing is, is that you will have various trials, and it does include that. Peter says the same thing, various trials. And are you prepared for that? Or you just want some emotional fakery? Put the smile on your face. Pretend everything's right. Tell everybody. Job doesn't give you, and God doesn't give you that option in the word. He says that it's, it, things hurt in life. Turn to me. Trust in me more. Be honest before me. Come before me with lament-laden worship in your pain. Turn to me, not away from me. Let me know that you love me for me and not for my things. Doesn't everybody know? Well, that's true, right? So as we press into this final answer, there's not an answer, but here's an answer that we know it's not. We know that suffering is not because God doesn't love us. That's one thing that we know. I'm going through suffering, and Job's turning to him, and he's like, I know it's not because you don't love me, God. You're sovereign and in control, and you're good, and you love me. I don't care what it looks like. That is the truth. You love me. And we have a more clear picture than Job did of God's love because we have the clarity of the perfect wisdom of God that came in Jesus Christ, the perfect sovereign power of God, and the perfect sovereign wisdom of God. You know where it's found? In the cross of Christ, in the suffering of a more perfect, blameless human being than Job. This was God's beloved son. You know, God said of Job, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. You want to know who ultimately did that? Who God speaks of more highly than Job? The only other person really ever and the existence of humanity is his own son that he sins and he says stuff like this in Matthew 3, 7. He not only says it in some heavenly council up here, but he opens up the skies when he's baptized Jesus and 
speaks through a cloud and comes down and says in front of those people that are there, and it like echoed. Some people just heard thunders, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't even started his ministry yet, hadn't sinned, hadn't turned away. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know what Satan's going to come after right after that? He's going to say, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, he leaves out beloved. Don't want you to know you're loved. Don't want to remind you of that word. No, just if you are, do this. If you are, do this. The temptations, he doesn't love you. Do this, trust me. I'll give you what you want and I'll make it easier. You won't have to go through the cross. Just fall down and worship me. I'll give you all you want. See the glories of the world? I'll give them to you. The easy way. Well, there was some battle going on there. Jesus defeats him there. He defeats him. He defeats him in the garden with the easy way out. And Jesus goes all the way to obeying him about the tree. Adam failed about the tree, but he goes, obey me about that tree in the garden. Obey me about that tree. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Adam turned to the tree, but the second Adam obeyed, obedient, perfect obedience all the way. Job went through some serious suffering. He went through some laughter of his friends, some mocking. But we see that Jesus went through all that and much, much, much more. And he went through it further. He was perfectly pure, more innocent. Then Job, uh, Peter said this about uh, Jesus, and he quoted Isaiah 53, 9, and 1 Peter 2, 22. He says, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Mm, the perfect man, innocent but suffering. Why? Why? Because he loved us. He demonstrated his love for us. He wanted many sons and daughters to come into the kingdom and enjoy and be restored back into fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. He wanted the people who would love one another and love God, and he did it out of love. He knew before the foundation of the world what he was working for, what he was doing. He had the, the ancient wisdom of the ages, and their plan succeeded marvelously, but few people saw it. Few people still see it today, the glory of the cross, the glory of the wisdom and the power of God in an unjust um, people being redeemed by a just person suffering unjustly. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all time. Nothing else can be done. There's nothing you can add to that. Sin is obliterated. It is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. Not just done away with. Swallowed up. <laughs> He's won for once for all time. Who is this Jesus that suffered? The just. Didn't do anything wrong. Perfectly just. The just. The righteous. Perfectly righteous for the unrighteous, for the unjust, for us. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Amen? This life of tribulation and suffering and various kinds of trials, we don't have all the answers for. Don't try to give people the answers, but do tell them that the answer is not that God doesn't love them. 
We know it's what it's not because he has demonstrated that. Let us grow in that love as we discover the endless depths of God's love for us in the gospel. Come on this journey with me where we dive deep into the gospel. We just dive deep into the depths of what it means when Jesus died and rose again for our sins. That's the passion. That's the passion is to dive into ever deeper. Not that, oh, I got the gospel. I got saved. That's done. Now let me find something else out there. It's like digging, discovering, and rediscovering, and digging deeper into through every text, discovering more of Jesus, more of him, more of the depths and the widths and the heights of his love for us. And let that love permeate and our love for one another. Amen? Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. He established this ordinance for the church to have a meal together that would represent his body and his shed blood. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by a close friend, by a disciple, by someone who ate at his table. He was betrayed. On that night, he took bread. God's sovereign through all suffering. I'll turn to you in the midst of this betrayal, and I will say, thank you, God. He gave thanks to God. And he said, this is my body. Here's the cure for your human ills, for your betrayals, for your sins. It's in my body, given for you. Let us partake of that together. Thank you, Father, for the story of Job. Thank you for his bruised and crushed body and all that he lost, Lord, that he said, though the Lord slay me, yet I will have faith in him. His faith was not lost. Though you took even his health from him, Lord, his faith remained. We thank you ultimately and mostly for your son, Jesus, who upon that cross offered up his body, broken for us, bond us together, in the broken body of Christ, in that humility of suffering, even when the suffering comes without answers. Help us to trust in you more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Then he took the, the fruit of the vine, the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant given in my blood given for you for the remission of sins. Take, take and drink of it, and when you do, do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember Christ shed blood for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that Job was restored in his health, and his possessions, and it was doubled. God, you are a God who can restore all things. You are a God who can resurrect from the dead and give eternal life. 
Nothing is lost. Nothing is ever lost in you. And with faith and trust in you, nothing can be taken away from us. Not eternally. Help us to praise and to worship you, this God who loves us so much. Anoint our hearts to worship you in these closing songs. In Jesus' name, amen.